Welcome to Author News Weekly, the weekly news show by authors for authors. We read the news so you don't have to. Join our panel of best-selling authors each week as we take a deep dive into the publishing world, both indie and traditional. Author News Weekly. Yeah, whatever. Welcome back to Author News Weekly. We read the news so you don't have to. Thanks for joining us. I'm R.A. McGee. Before we get into the topics this week, let me introduce the crew. First, we've got uh, Mr. Jim Heskett. Hello. Happy to be here. Followed swiftly by Pippa Werner. Hello. And last but not least, Nick Dacker. What's up, everybody? Very good. Very good. Hey, Pippa, I got good news and I got bad news involving you. Uh-oh. Uh, which would you prefer first? <laughs> Either order. Surprise me. It's a All right. So the good wait, 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 like, can we guess which one's the good news and which one's the bad <laughs> <Yeah>. news? <laughs> I think it's going to be apparent to her. I think okay. she'll know pretty okay. easily. So sure. the good news is I was graciously asked to be on friend of the show, Craig Hart's show yesterday, e- the E2 Books show. It was great. We had an interview, me and him and Scott. Uh, it was great. We had a great time, right? And I shouted out at the very end. Author News Weekly, right? Which is the good news, right? Hey, let's put our little show into the atmosphere as often as possible. No. The bad <laughs> news. what I meant. The bad news besides Nick's at the mixing board is that I got everybody's name right except you were <laughs> Pippa Middleton. Okay? And <laughs> when Can I, was, I have her bank account? I was so mad because I worked so hard not to call you Pippa Middleton. And in a... <laughs> In a moment of weakness, I threw it all away. <laughs> but Pippa, you can use that now, though, to apply for a passport in the United States. You were mentioned on a podcast, so that's evidence you can take to the passport office. Yes. I don't have an ID with me, but I do have this podcast. Yes. Just listen. <laughs> He's obviously talking about me. So I did mention how gracious you were with me butchering your name on occasion. And then I just butchered your name. It was like Providence. You know? a- an example of... <laughs> Yeah, watch me put my foot in my mouth. Here we go. All right. So now that I feel totally embarrassed about my abilities to say names, I think we should get into the news. I know. So can we get a round of applause? What show am I on? I think it worked, and that was beautiful. No, no, no. Now we're done with the news. <laughs> yes. Wow. That was a quick was, segment. Thanks for listening, everybody. Yeah. Take news it easy, out. guys. Bye. All right. <laughs> so the first story that I've got for us today is something that we've touched on before, but I've never seen this much information about it. Jim mentioned it's a pretty long article, and I'm seeing a lot of information that I had no Damn idea Jim, about. what the hell is the matter with you? <laughs> I kept that one for posterity, just in case we needed to to use it. So, in any event, the title of the article is The Surprisingly Big Business of Library Ebooks. All right. And this uh, author, who is trying to rival War and Peace, is named Daniel A. Gross. And he's basically talking about how that since the pandemic happened, that libraries are doing more of their business via ebooks than in person books. And there's a lot of info in here that I didn't know about. You know, a couple of you guys are in Colorado, and it says that the the Denver Public Library increased its digital checkouts by more than 60% to 2.3 million 
and spent about a third of its collections budget on digital content, up from 20% the year before. This is pretty deep with a lot of information. What do you guys think about this? Is the pandemic going to be ultimately viewed as a turning point in ebooks taking over the world? Pippa, what do you think? Well, I would like to see ebooks take over the world. I think they're very useful. I like that ebooks are beginning to be more understood as a library thing, that people have more accessibility. I think more formats is better. Everyone absorbs language in different ways. So having audiobooks and ebooks and so on is good. Although it always seems that the books I'm looking for are only in audiobook form, and I don't do those very well. So mm. that's kind of annoying. But otherwise, good, accessible, lovely. Right on. Nick, what do you got, man? What do you think? Uh, I don't know. I don't know enough about this library ebook thing. One of the questions I always had is answered by this article, which is where these companies make their money. And apparently, I mean, obviously, libraries pay them, but that money is American taxpayer money that eventually gets funneled to overdrive. So I don't know. I mean, I'm not sure how I feel about that. Good, bad, in between. I got nothing. Mm. On the other hand, it would go to the big five the other way. So and no, yeah, that's that's on my, I don't know if it's a good thing or a bad thing. And all I do know is that I have some books in the library and I don't get paid squat for them. So that's awesome. Yeah, I got you. Jim, what do you think, man? Well, I think with this article is largely about overdrive and about how much money they're making in this wild west of digital media. Because this article talks about how these traditional models of selling paperbacks to the libraries are completely different now in the digital age. And the libraries don't own the content. They don't own the digital content. There's various methods of leasing the content basically from publishers. And it just sounds like that, I mean, it kind of sounds to me like a, a lot of our tax dollars are being wasted overpaying for digital content to these publishers and companies like Overdrive because the government just doesn't know how to regulate it. We don't know, like, it's all so new and so different. The government just doesn't know how to regulate it. So they're charging insane amounts of money for ebooks to libraries. That was what I got from this article. Yeah. So I think there was a couple things that I thought was interesting. One of them was I hear about Kobo and Rakuten, and I didn't never really had a frame of reference for them because my books aren't on that platform. And this says that Rakuten, uh, who makes the Kobo e-reader, bought Overdrive for more than yeah. $400 million in 2015. Did you guys have any idea that they were that big? But really? then again, I work with Scribe Count, so mm. it's kind of our business to know which yeah. platforms are doing what. <laughs> so it's probably not general knowledge. Kobo is a Canadian for those who are not familiar, so it's much bigger there than it tends to be in the US. Yeah, yeah. And another thing that I thought was interesting was they had this deal where, you know, the one copy one user model, and I remember reading that when the library buys paper books, they pay like an exorbitant fee for them, right? Like uh -huh. so when the library buys like the newest uh, Lee Child book. They pay like $100 for it and then they lend it out forever. And so they're saying that they're, you know, that's not how they're able to do the digital things. You know what I mean? And that's just, I don't know. It's kind of interesting to watch things change. I don't really have anything to say about this either, but um, I don't know. This says in 2011, HarperCollins introduced a new lending model that was capped out at 26 checkouts. 
after which the library would need to purchase the book again. How do they negotiate that? That's kind of weird. I think they just negotiated because they knew people wanted ebooks and they could get away with it. Mm. Every time there's a new technology, people go a little bit crazy about it. Mm. Laser Max, Betamax, Laser Betamax. Betamax, yeah. <laughs> Let's bring uh, back Betamax. I'm, I'm waiting for it to be big. I got it all in my closet, you know. So, <laughs> <laughs> all right. In any event, we'll move on from this. Uh, it's an interesting article. If you got some time, check out the show notes. It's in there, and it's kind of a really deep dive into uh, the business of libraries buying and lending out our uh, our books. So, now this number two here, I got like a weird question for you guys. It's a craft question, and because uh, someone asked me this a week or two ago. And I gave them my opinion on the matter, but I think you guys probably have something interesting to say. And their question was, how do you make your story longer? As in, they went through their story and they were hoping to have it maybe 50,000 words and and it was about 20,000 words. And they essentially told the whole story that they wanted to tell in those 20,000 words, but it wasn't as long as they wanted it to be, you know. So let's just assume that it's a good story and it's plotted well. What tips would you guys give people to put a little more meat on the bones without dragging the whole thing down and making it slow and ridiculous? I wouldn't. Make it your mailing list magnet. Okay. Well, let's say this person has an all-the-time problem doing this. Let's say this person is habitually maybe doesn't know what to do to make a chapter more robust without padding. You know what I'm saying? run it by some beta readers and see if there are things that they're having trouble connecting. You know, I have this same quote unquote problem. This is kind of the way that I write. Most people, it seems like the norm is that most people overwrite and then they have to go back and cut down to remove the fat. I'm very much the opposite in that my first drafts are very short. They're usually about a half to two thirds as long as the final product is going to be. Because when I'm in first draft, I'm always thinking like, six sentences ahead and just trying to get it out of my head and onto the page as quick as possible. So I ended up skipping a lot of things. And so I don't know if you author who sent us this question is the same way. But like what I do when I go back in my second draft is that's really the first draft is mostly just dialogue plot. It's, you know, Bob opened the door, Bob went through the door and then Bob said this. But in my second draft, that's when I go back through and I add in more descriptions of places. I add in more dialogue, especially once I know my characters. I usually just spend my first draft getting to know my characters. And then so in second draft, I know how they're supposed to sound. So I can change their dialogue, add to it. I can add in one thing that I usually leave out in first draft is like character reactions. Something happens, you want to show the character reacting to it. And that's the kind of stuff that I add in second draft. And uh, yeah, that's it. My first drafts, like an 80,000 word novel will usually be for me about 50 to 55K in first draft. And then I go back and add and flesh it out and turn it into a story. That's so cool. Nice. Nice. I've been known to write extra prologues and just (laughs) have like 10 or 15, 27 prologues. So it's like the reverse of the last uh, Lord of the Rings movie. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, pretty precisely. Yeah, I put the Cimmerillion before my books um, is what's going on. I really want to world build, you know, uh, make sure even though I write in the modern day in the world that we currently live in, I really want people to understand that, you know, most of the houses in the neighborhood are stick built single family homes. Mm. Doesn't matter. But Nick I want always starts yeah. his prologues with the earth cooled. <laughs> the first line in all his prologues. Prologue in the one, beginning. The earth cooled. 
God created the heavens and the earth. No, for real though, I love Jim's advice. Like always, do whatever Jim says and you'll probably be okay (laughs) in life and in writing and in happiness. To add to that, I do write the vast majority of my books with rare exception are third person uh, point of view, close narrator. So each chapter is a singular point of view from one character. So, you know, most of the chapters will be from a main character or protagonist. And so what I'll do if I'm needing to fill out some space you have to be very careful about this. If you're doing your job well as a writer, you shouldn't shoot for a word count. You should shoot for a good story. But if you think that you can add in some extra information that the reader might like, one of the ways I've found to do that is to add or another chapter from the point of view of like the antagonist. For me anyway, I typically don't get as deeply into their head as you know one might want. So that's a great way of giving the reader another point of view figuratively and literally getting in their head and making them humanize them a little bit, that kind of thing. I find that works pretty well because then I can make that bad guy, good guy stand off at the end even more epic because we know both of them pretty well. Mm. Other than that, I like to go in and sprinkle the word that in every sentence Mm. (laughs) because it is something that you can do that will pad your word count quite a bit to get to that target Mm, I think you if can we also start sentences with interestingly. Yeah. <laughs> and it came to pass. There's never enough adverbs in books. That's pretty much my advice. He good said silently. <laughs> good times. Good times. I think that was good. I think that there are maybe some people who haven't found their process and they don't understand that they can pull a gym and write 50, 60,000 words and then go back and make it a little more what they're looking for make it a little more robust without just fluffing. So that's good. I think that's really great advice, guys. I appreciate it. I appreciate it. All right. Next story here. This is kind of hearkening back to a story that we talked about a while back. Um, And actually, no, wait a minute. Okay, okay. I'm wrong. So I thought that this was a story about when people were doing like returns and stuff on Audible and that there was like some suit, there was a lawsuit happening. But no, this is authors are suing Audible for back royalty payments. Uh, It says two book publishers filed a class action lawsuit against Amazon's audiobook company Audible last Friday over alleged improper royalty payments. The plaintiffs are Golden Unicorn Enterprises and Big Dog Books, LLC. They claim that Audible underpays its self-published authors by falsely reporting the number of audiobooks sold. And so this is interesting. Have you guys ever considered this? Have you ever looked at your audible payout? Why is it the number that it is? Because I have, and I've never gotten deep enough to think they were cheating me. Audible never seems like it's working out right. Am I the only one that feels like that? No. This is in reference to what happened uh, last year when authors started figuring out exactly how many books were being returned. Because it mentions in the article, it was a software glitch. Mm. that allowed people to see the, what does it say, the gross, uh, the gross and the number of returns instead of just the net that they were only seeing before, which is shady, Amazon. Mm-hmm. If you're listening, this is shady. And I don't have high hopes for Golden Unicorn Enterprises and Big Dog Books. <laughs> you know, that's quite a David and Goliath story there. <laughs> but Amazon, what you're doing is wrong. I actually would not be surprised. There's a another lawsuit going on that it sounds like is not actually going poorly that was in the authors against amazon 
Really? Mm-hmm. Is this like a secret? I never heard uh, of it. No, let me find citations here. Ally was the one. Uh... Nick, let's dance and buy her some time to look this up. Oh, no, you I leave. want to hear what you guys are saying. We're going to wait awkwardly until she finds uh, it. You okay. No, I'm just, kidding. I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> I'm with Jim, man. I can't tell you enough how much I hate British people, readers, and Amazon. <laughs> um, get them all in. The- no, um, Amazon, Amazon is, I've said it before, and I'll say it again because it's true. It's like the evil stepdad. It's like just because the evil stepdad puts food on the table doesn't mean he should be allowed to beat the shit out of you. And that's exactly what Amazon is. It's like, well, we're paying authors, so you're not allowed to complain. Bullshit. I think we should complain. I hope something comes to this. I don't think it will. I don't think anything will change. All it's shown is that, one, Amazon can't be sued because they're going to win anyway, which we've already kind of, we've learned that the hard way. And two, that they're doing shady stuff all over the place. And this is just the one that we found out about. I mean, imagine if they did this same thing for, I don't know, I guess there's probably an equivalent over on the ebook side, but I can't think of the, the perfect analogy right now, but I'm sure they're doing this all the time. Well, and you know, and it just kind of reminds me of a, a few years ago, I am, it's actually, as of right now, I'm still kicked off of um, AMS, Amazon Marketing Services, whatever they call their advertising platform now. The one that's linked to your KDP account, I cannot use because there's a quote unquote billing error. Well, the billing error was, in span of one afternoon, I paused a bunch of lock screen ads. And the next day, I woke up to $3,000 of extra ad spend. And so I tried to fuck around with opening a dispute with Chase and all that, which worked. Then Amazon promptly came in and turned me off. So anyway, they do this all the time. And I'm not even a, oh, yeah. a remotely surprised. Right Is that on. enough time? Did I buy Dragon? No, that was perfect. That was perfect. Yeah, I, I Lawsuit. The- what, what's popping? It reminds okay. me of the time I mowed my lawn. <laughs> It's called Audiblegate is what you can search. And there's the Facebook group is called Fair Deal for Rights Holders. And it's basically, it's a class action lawsuit. It's a whole bunch of people got together who had enough deep pockets combined to get into this and trace royalties and actually see their data after a whole bunch of time of not having seen it before. And oh boy. So that's been going for about a year now. Mm. And obviously I'm not, fair disclosure, I am not part of the lawsuit. So I'm not one of the lawyers involved. I don't, which actually means I'm probably less muzzled than anyone else. Um, But it's not like it immediately got booted out and there's nothing going on. This has been going through and they've been giving regular updates. So Mm. That's really interesting. I had no idea that there was a lawsuit in place. I'm going to have to hop into that Facebook group and do some research and see see what I can see. That sounds interesting. So, all right, guys, good stuff, good stuff. So Amazon up to some shenanigans uh, per usual. We'll see how it all plays out at the end. Okay, now, I don't know about you guys, but I sometimes wake up in the morning and I feel like I'm a little calloused. You know, I feel like I'm a little hearted. You know, the world is just, it's the way that I am. It's the way that I grew up. You know what I mean? And I don't feel like I have enough empathy anymore, you know? And so I was looking for a group of people to feel bad for. And I think I found the perfect group of people that we should feel bad for. All right. Uh, The byline of this is 
14 reasons aging is harder now than 20 years ago. And this is about literary agents. So I think we should feel bad for them while we discuss this. I hope you guys are ready to put on your morning clothes. I think you're going to have a hard sell. (laughs) (laughs) You guys don't feel bad about literary agents? No. Okay. I'm going to go take all those faces as a no. So in any event, (laughs) here we go. So they say Kristen Nelson is the author of this. She's apparently the Nelson Literary Agency. And she's talking about why it's harder to be a literary agent now than it was 20 years ago. So the first thing she says is there are more agents agenting. Right? I guess that's bad for them. And then it goes on to say the agents are acting like editors. Crowded social media means lower agent visibility. But what's interesting to me is if we get a little further down, one of her complaints is uh, going indie. Authors might start in the traditional publishing realm and then move indie, which eliminates a source of income for the agent. As most folks know, she says, I'm hugely supportive of authors and indie publishing, but the loss of talent to the indie sphere does impact an agency's bottom line and makes agenting career more difficult to sustain. Do you guys feel bad about what you're doing to these people? I think these literary agents know that uh, like truck drivers and audiobook narrators, their jobs aren't going to be here in 20 years. I think that Kristen Nelson was actually my dream agent back when I was pursuing traditional publishing. She represents Josh Mailerman, who wrote Bird Box, one of my favorite books. I learned a lot from age literary agent blogs back in like 2011 and 2012, like the Query Shark blog. Learned a lot about copywriting and about how the book industry works, but yeah. Why would you? <laughs> because. <laughs> Please keep going, Jim, so I can. I, get I really can't. That out of my head. Query I really can't. Query shark. Query shark. Query shark. Oh God. Query shark. I'm gonna go drink. Okay, Nick, say something else besides query shark next, please. Hold on, I'm typing Query Shark Do 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 as the title of this episode, so I don't forget it. <laughs> Lord knows I'm not going to listen to it again. So, yeah, I think if agents would just do their job and um, editors would just do their job and publishers would do their job, everybody would have a job. It's like real real estate agents. Like, if you're good at being a real estate agent, you should probably you'll be able to have a job. If you're not good at being a real estate agent, you're probably going to get you know thrown to the curb by people who can do it better with software. That's what this is all saying to me. This is an example of people not wanting to progress, move things forward in the industry. So as kind of a related topic, you know, the AI debate in the narrating world, which is raging, if anybody hasn't heard about it, all the narrators are up in arms. Sorry, the narrators guild people are up in arms because AI is getting really good at reading audiobooks and stuff for them. So this is kind of the same sort of deal. I think agents should just get really, really good at repping people and not try to be an editor and not try to do all this other stuff. And yes, many of them will be out of business because there aren't as many agents needed these days. Boo fucking who? Like, I don't know. Like, sorry. (laughs) I'd be slightly more charitable, honestly, that if you scroll, let's say. It's going indie is there. And then a few down, there's blockbuster mentality and death of the mass market format. Mm. 
And I honestly think that a whole bunch of the things that are being cited are actually part of other changes. Like they correlate highly. And so like publishing did a whole bunch of this to itself. Mm -hmm. And yes, you know, agents are having trouble. That's fine. Editors I hear are working with over a book a day if you average it out over the course of the year, which is insane. So like everyone's job has gotten harder, but I don't think that's because of social media or because of people going indie or like I would trace people going indie to in large part publishing going blockbuster and agents needing to follow suit in order to sell books to publishing houses. So it's kind of like we're all trapped there. It's not people going indie that are causing the problem. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I think part of the issue too is a lot of us are went indie because of the slush pile. You know, Mm -hmm. it's like you write something and you send it to someone and you just never hear back, you know, you query and nobody gets back to you and, and you're like, oh, I'll put it out myself. You know, that wasn't my path. I never queried anyone. But, you know, I know plenty of people that did. And then they put a book out and they sell a bunch of copies. And you go, well, you know, why did I even bother with these people? They're not even going to. And you can get- write several more books in the time it would take you to do the querying. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. It's just kind of okay. a waste of time, right? Well, that and then self-publishing showed people that a whole bunch of things that were getting rejected by publishers were actually big sellers. Mm-hmm. Like, do we actually think prepper? like prepper fiction would have gotten so big. There are a whole bunch of people that were writing romances with people of color who were being told, oh no, no one's ever going to buy this if there's, you know, a black woman on the cover Mm. that Mm. shot up to the top 10 in romance. They were wrong. (laughs) Yes, that's true. So, (laughs) you know, I guess there's just no telling, you know, but I think Jim, not Jim, I think Nick's right this time. I think, uh, sorry, man. I know I say that so infrequently that it didn't. Are we going to receive the scores at the end of each? (laughs) I'm telling them up. I'm telling them up. Okay. And this time I got to give it to Nick because I think (sighs) if they're good at what they do, then they'll, they'll stick around and they'll find people to rep and it'll work out for them. Well, and the implication of being good, just to tack on a final thing is that they must be willing to look forward and change and adapt because that's what indie authorship is. That's literally. The definition of our job. Yeah, sure, we write books, but plenty of traditionally published authors write books as well. The thing that makes us different, the successful indies are willing to look at new things and say, well, what's this book talk thing? Let's go jump on it. Try it out. If agents are just going to whine and complain, just like real estate agents that, oh, well, Zillow's taking all our jobs away. Well, go figure out how to be better. <laughs> I don't have a lot of patience for people that are complaining. Mm-hmm. I have kids, so I don't really need more people complaining to me all day. That's not the yogurt I wanted. Uh, well, that's the right. yogurt you're going to get. <laughs> it's key lime pie or nothing. So, all right, guys. Go culture your yogurt. own if you want different yogurt. <laughs> get a job. Get a job. All right. So, looking at the time here, I think we'll go ahead and wrap this bad boy up. You guys got anything you want to add before we get out of here? Nope, doesn't look like it. All right, guys. For all of us at... I can I see with Jim's face that he enjoyed that. <laughs> I think <laughs> I think we no. should just have, have a bookend of Happy soup sandwiches. Here. You know what I mean? We just soup sandwiched it in the front. We soup sandwiched it at the end. No soup. And I, 
I expect no less. I expect no less. All right, guys. Uh, for all of us at Author News Weekly, I'm Ari McGee saying this meeting is over. Goodbye.